You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's not designed for women of today, and I call them the full-time career women, working mother, loving wife, and future caregiver. Social Security doesn't cover us. The math stayed the same. Women changed. We changed the model. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. Start by knowing what you own and what you owe. We'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more. Her Money comes to you through Megaphone. Hey, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today. You know, when we launched the Her Money podcast three years ago... And when we launched HerMoney.com nearly two years ago, we did it all with you in mind. And by you, I mean all women. Every single one of us, our company is led by women. We produce content for women and about women. And I have loved hearing from so many of you that this is what you wanted, that you now have a place where you can feel safe talking about your money. Every time I hear things like that, it just gives me so much joy. But occasionally, I do still get the question, Do women really need financial advice just for us? Or shouldn't money advice be the same for everyone? The truth is, no, money is not the same for everyone. And yes, women do need advice just for us because women's financial concerns differ widely and wildly from those of men in so many ways. The gender wage gap, means we have to save more than men just to end up with the same amount once we reach retirement. And then our longer life expectancies mean we actually have to make that money go further. Our lower risk tolerances mean we don't always invest as aggressively as we need to. And since we are much more likely to work as unpaid caregivers than men, we're more likely to end up behind the eight ball financially. I could go on and on and on, but I'm going to stop there because today we've got an incredible guest who can pick up where I left off. Marsha Mantel is the author of What's the Deal with Social Security for Women? She is the founder of Mantel Retirement Consulting, and she has spent the last 20 25 years translating retirement concepts into everyday language. So today, we are going to dive into everything that we all need to know about our Social Security today, but also in the future, no matter what age you are. We're going to talk about how to get the most money that we possibly can, that rumor that Social Security is not going to be there. And why, as I said again, why women are different. Marsha, welcome. Thanks so much for being with me today. Oh, thanks so much, Jean. I'm so excited to be here. So I think that anyone who doubted that women had different challenges when it comes to Social Security should really only look at the title of your book. So what is the deal with Social Security for Women? I am so happy to hear your intro talking about that money is different or financial advice for women is different. Well, Social Security is different, too. 
And what's interesting is when you look at just the facts about the program, the math is the same, right? The calculations are the calculations. They're not different by gender. But there are three really big differences for women. The first you've already mentioned, and that's that wage gap, the gender wage gap. So I call it less in means less out. And what happens with Social Security, your benefit for every one of us, it's based on our own work history. So if we're getting paid, you know, 82 percent, 82 cents on the dollar on average than men, well, then we get a lot less on the way out because there's just less going in for us to even get the payout. And yet we live longer. Can you, before you move Mm. off of that point, can you dive a little deeper into how Social Security math works? Like, I don't want people's eyes to glaze over here, but I also, or ears, because it's a podcast, (laughs) but I also do think many of us do not have this basic understanding of what goes into that Social Security check that we will eventually receive. Thanks for asking, and it is a great question. There are three key components so that no one's ears glaze over. The first is you have to be eligible. That means you've had to pay into the Social Security for 10 years or longer. We talk about as earning 40 credits. You find out if you've earned those credits on your Social Security statement. So it'll tell you right in the first sentence, you know, you're eligible because you've earned so many credits. Do we all have a statement? We all have a statement. Yes, it's on SSA, the Social Security's website, ssa.gov. And then you go to their vanity URL or slash my Social Security. And right from their homepage, you set up your account and you get your statement. It is easy to do. And I strongly encourage every woman to do this. Um, So get your statement. Information is on there, as is the second item you need for the calculation. And that is your full retirement age. There's math behind this. It's not super hard math, but there is. And it's based on your your benefit. Your check is going to be based on when you claim relative to this idea of your full retirement age. And that is a specific, a very specific month and year when you reach age 66 and four months or 66 and six months or 67, because that's when Social Security deems you to be retired, and says, okay, you can get your optimal benefit now because we think you're retired. You can still be working, but you need to know your FRA. And the third piece of information you also get from your statement, you gather that I'm thinking this is a great tool. The third piece is how many years have you worked? Where do you have what we call covered earnings? So those are wages where an employer has paid into Social Security on your behalf. You need 35 years because Social Security is going to look at your highest 35 years. And that gets to be really interesting for women, because we don't always have 35 years. Oh, we've worked 50 years. Like, don't get me wrong there, but we're not always paid, as you mentioned, especially for that caregiving, right? Either you stay home with your young children, you stay home with your teenagers, you're dealing with, you know, an elderly parent or relative. There are whole, you know, decades sometimes in our life where we're not getting paid, But Social Security still uses 35 years as the number. So what happens when they look at a 35-year history and we stepped out of the workforce for 10? You get 10 zeros. It is really that simple. You have 20 years of earnings or 25 years of earnings in this example and 10 zeros. So your overall benefit is going to be greatly reduced relative to someone who did have earnings all 35 years. And this is what the the second 
reason and big reason that Social Security is so different for women, I call it the antiquated model. This is a little bit antiquated. You know, in 1935, um, the model, it was built for that era, that era of men and women. Women got married, women had children, their husbands were out and working. So the husbands got the Social Security and it was meant to protect at-home wives and mothers, recognizing they didn't have any work earnings. But today, it's not designed for for women of today. And I call them the full-time career women, working mother, loving wife, and future caregiver. Social Security doesn't cover us. The math stayed the same. Women changed. We changed the model. Okay. I know there are things that we can do about that. I know there are different Social Security claiming strategies that we can employ to basically get the most money possible. But before we get there, tell me about the third thing. What What's the third thing that make women different? The third thing is what I call the risks and rewards of relationships. So we enter relationships in really interesting ways. You know, we're not just a wife, right? We're a trusting wife. And what happens in that particular situation, when your husband comes home after 40 years on the job, whatever it is, he's tired, he he wants to retire, and he decides to claim Social Security early. What we don't realize oftentimes is that has a, a huge implication to us women that we are actually going to be getting oftentimes the least amount of Social Security if we become the widow, all because our husband, who we love and we trusted to make good decisions, made a decision that has a real financial impact on us. So we need to understand our relationships and understand what happens in in these different relationship lanes or these categories on our financial situation. For the 30-year-olds in my audience who are listening and thinking, yeah, maybe this is going to help my mom, but it definitely is not going to help me. What do you say? Well, I say I have a 28-year-old daughter. I also have a 23-year-old daughter. And what I say to them is understand what Social Security is designed to do for a nation. It is a social insurance program, which is different than everything else we have. But what it's designed to do is to provide, and these are key words, a modest social safety net for your retirement. It does not and never was intended to replace your income. So for the 30-year-olds and the young younger folks, keep in mind, you should get some amount of safety net, but you also have 35 or 40 working years in front of you. Use them to your fullest advantage. Take every advantage of saving in your company's 401k, your 403b, or if you don't have those, learn about IRAs and Roth IRAs and start moving money directly out of your checking account into these retirement accounts. You do own your retirement. You're preaching to the choir, but it also (laughs) sounds like you're not a big believer that Social Security will be around for them. I think it will be around, but not to the same calculation that it is today. So on average today, that the average worker, if you earn middle income work and wages throughout your whole career, Social Security is designed to cover about 40% or replace about 40% of that income. I can see where that could change, but I think it will especially change for high income earners instead of getting whatever the estimate is going to be. I think higher earners are going to see lesser social safety net. It'll be smaller. 
So the people who still need it most, you think it will be around for them? I do think it will be around. Um, Social Security is turning 85 this August. You know, she's been around for a long time. The underpinnings of it was written by a woman at a time when women didn't have a place in, in the cabinet. Uh, Frances Perkins was the architect behind Social Security. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg really supports this and made sure it was equal and, and gender neutral. So it's there for all of us. And it's a key provision of what a government does in a developed country. Uh, we do provide for our elderly. We do provide for disabled. I think it will still be around for a long time. And we're going to get to what you need to know, no matter what age you are, to get the most from Social Security. But before we do that, let me remind everybody, Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more from your money? What if you could make your savings work as hard as you do? And what if that helped you reach your financial goals faster? It all starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, the folks at Fidelity will work with you to evaluate your investment options and ways to grow your savings. You can get started today at fidelity.com slash demand more. We are talking with Marsha Mantel, author of What's the Deal with Social Security for Women and founder of Mantel Retirement Consulting. All right, let's talk about the top things people need to know to really get the most from Social Security. Let's start with claiming strategies. I have often been asked the question, when is the best time to claim Social Security? And I know that in a general sense, you get more if you can wait from age 62 when you're first eligible to as late as age 70. But I also know that general rules don't work for everyone. So can you can you talk about this? Yes. And you're right. General rules work for almost no one, in fact. However, what I would say, if you wanted a really quick answer, like when's the best time to claim, it's at your full retirement age. And that's because all these wonderful actuaries and all these folks who do math all the time, they have calculated, you know, the odds that you're going to live a long time and using your 35 highest years of your earnings, they've come up with the number. Here's how much per month you're entitled to, to provide for you a modest amount of income to to give you some dignity in retirement. So if you needed an answer, full retirement age. And right now it's between ages 66 and 67 for for all of us getting ready to claim. But that's not really a good answer. The good answer is more around what you're speaking to, Jean, that you can't use generalizations. Every situation is different. But what I do know and what I hear from, I I often have an opportunity to speak to um, various audiences around the country. And oh my gosh, they're so funny. Um, I ask an audience, you know, what's your full retirement age? I don't know. Okay. What's the earliest age you can claim Social Security? 62. They all know. And it's like this huge, you know, rising that everybody knows 62 is the earliest. And then I ask them, how much of a, of a reduction are you going to get if you claim at 62? And they have no idea. Like, what do you, what do you mean right, a reduction? So dig into this. For every, yeah. If you claim at 62 instead of at your full retirement age, how much less money do you get? A whopping 25 to 30% less in monthly income. 
it is a huge decrease. And that's because this this pile of money, again, that these actuaries figured out you're going to need, um, has to stretch an extra five, six, seven years. So it has to be a lot less because it has to last a lot longer. And that concept is very foreign to most people. It's a huge decrease in your monthly benefit. And you're making the decision you know, in your very early 60s that will impact you when you live to your 80s and your 90s and those turning 100. So I hear what you're saying. Wait until you're between 66 and 67 when you hit that full retirement age. Why wouldn't you wait until age 70 if you could? I mean, the math shows that for every year between 62 and 70 that you wait, you get this bump in benefits of about 8%, which is a huge guaranteed return no matter what kind of a investment environment we're living in. Yeah, it is a great question, and it's something that everyone should look at considering. But here's what happens. Um, You decide to retire at 65, perhaps, or sometimes you're shown the door, you know, frankly. You don't always have a job in your mid to late 60s. If you do have a job, you are the person who can delay. There's probably only a few of you who would need to claim while you're still working in your late 60s. So if you have a paycheck, think about delaying Social Security. You do get that 8% per year delayed retirement credit bonus, uh, which is great. But the reality is for most of us, by the time we're in our mid-60s, someone in our family is ill and needs help, so we need to step off the work path, or we're no longer able to work for whatever reasons. At that point, you still need to keep the lights on, right? You still need to eat. Where's that money coming from? And you either have to pull from your own personal savings or you can start your Social Security. People tend to start Social Security. Let's talk about some different life scenarios. If you're divorced, what's the strategy? Interestingly, divorced individuals have often an option that they can claim benefits on their ex-spouse, but they have to meet four very specific rules. The big rule is you had to have been married to your ex for 10 consecutive years or longer. If you meet that rule, then you go to the others. You need to be 62 and your ex needs to be 62. Um, You cannot have remarried and you need to wait two years or longer before you can claim unless your ex is already claiming. So the the real gatekeeper here is you had to have been married for 10 years. But if you are, and so many women don't know this, it's like, no, 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 Marsha, I was married back in the 70s. You know, I was married in the 80s. It's like, yes, but did that marriage last 10 years or longer? Oh, yeah, we were married for 15 years. Okay, then you're eligible to at least see if you get a bigger benefit, more monthly income by claiming on your ex but you don't call your ex, all right? This is not a conversation between you and, and that person. This is between you and the Social Security Administration. You make a phone call, you set up an appointment with the SSA, you bring in your um, marriage certificate, your divorce decree, and they will look up for you and say, okay, well, so if, if my husband is Dan, but if we were divorced, be okay, Marsha, on your record, you're eligible for $900 a month, But as an ex-spouse, you can claim on Dan and get $1,500 a month. Now, explain how that works. When you claim on a spouse, you don't get their full benefit, correct? You do not. Spousal benefits have always, from the beginning, been set as you 
can get as much as half of your spouse's or ex-spouse's, what they call your primary insurance amount, your calculated value. So it's a calculation. And if if Dan's uh, benefit was $3,000 a month, mine as a spouse is $1,500. I can get half of Dan's. If we're divorced and met those four rules, I can still get half of Dan's if that gives me a higher benefit. What if Dan dies? Oh, poor Dan. I always kill him off when I talk to people. (laughs) Um, Yes. When Dan dies, I will be a surviving spouse. And at that point, I will step into his shoes if he was getting the higher benefit. So and even if we're divorced, if we had been married those 10 years and I have not remarried, I can step into my ex's shoes and get the amount he was getting. So wait, you would get his full benefit if you're a surviving spouse or a half benefit? No, you get his full amount that he was receiving as his monthly payment. So in, in my example with Dan, if he was getting $3,000 and I was getting $1,500, when Dan dies, I step into his shoes and get the full $3,000. My $1,500 goes away. Same happens with an ex. If your ex dies before you and you know about it, somehow you have to find out about that. But if your ex dies, you step into his shoes as well. Let's hope you're amicable enough that you would realize that somebody that you were once married to has passed away. That's very sad to me that you might not know that. What about, is there anything that married couples need to do when they look at who should claim first and who should claim when? If we've both been in the workforce, how do we strategize there? That's a a tougher situation. So I look at it as a series of steps. First step, each of you get your statements out so you have real information in front of you. Second, what's the age gap between the two of you? If you're close in age, Dan and I are about eight months apart, you know, essentially the same age. So we could retire at the same time. But what if we were five years apart? Well, they're two different strategies. So you have to look at that age gap if there is one between the the married people. And then you look at the amounts. Um, If there's a big differential in insurance amounts that each of you will get, that higher earner has to be concerned with protecting the lower earner if she's the one who's going to be the survivor. Um, You want to have as much income coming into your retirement household as possible from Social Security. So that's a person who might, if the the discrepancy is big, let's say, well, again, Dan's 3,000, I'm getting 1,500. We want to make sure that Dan waits till 70, if it's at all possible, so that he gets the maximum amount. So first of all, we have more money when we're living in retirement. So those retirement years where we're together. And then if he dies first, I step into a higher benefit. And it helps protect me when I'm 95. Is there anything that if we're if we are in a same sex couple that's different? The good news today is no, there's nothing different anymore. I call it married is married. So now that everyone can be married and marry the person you love, um, you're eligible for spousal benefits. If you do get divorced, a same-sex couple gets divorced, they're eligible to be considered for ex-spouse benefits and surviving spouse benefits. I want to go back before we wrap this up to my younger listeners for a second. As we're thinking about accruing Social Security credits, as we're thinking about paying into the system, are there any things that we can do actively so that we know that we'll have a decent-sized benefit on the back end? 
there are a couple of things to think about, um, and it may be harder to do. So the, the key ingredient to getting a bigger benefit is having a bigger paycheck and as many years as possible in those 35. So if you're thinking about looking for a new job, if you're thinking about asking for a raise, do it. Give it a try. You know, it can't hurt to ask the question. Um, and, and be mindful that as you work and gain career experience, you should be getting more income. So look to that. Another thing I, I grapple with this is um, the millennial moms who step off the work track. They, they want to stay home with their babies. I totally get it. But be mindful that you're going to have some zeros on your statement. So just be wise to that. Be um, aware that that's happening. Well, and I think that's one thing if if you're staying home because you want to stay home. And it's another thing, and this is true of caregivers in an older age as well, if you are stepping out because of the argument that it's costing you as much to pay for somebody to care for your kids or care for your parents as you get paid yourself, these social security credits often are an afterthought or not thought of at all, and that's real value. It's real value, and even five years out of the workforce, no matter when it happens, you know, early on with the babies or later with caregiving, um, it matters, and it can reduce your monthly benefit hundreds of dollars per month. And that is real money. Last question. There are these services that I have recommended in the past where you can have a calculation run for you that determines exactly the right time to claim Social Security because there are so many permutations, especially among couples. Are you a fan? I'm a partial fan. I think your first and best tool is your statement. Um, unless you're really doing a deep dive retirement income plan, you're getting truly ready to step off the workforce, you know, getting ready to quit that job, you can just do a whole lot of good stuff in five minutes by reading your statement. However, if you are doing that deep dive plan, I am a fan of doing the tools. It just makes it easier, you know, unless you want to become a retirement income and social security expert. We've there got are you, tools so there. why yeah. would we do that? <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I, I, like, I like the tools that are out there. All right. The book is What's the Deal with Social Security for Women? Marsha Mantel, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it was such a pleasure, Jean. Thank you. And we'll be back with Catherine and your mailbag. HerMoney.com's Catherine Tuggle has joined me in the studio. Hey there. Hi. How are you? So good. How are you? My head's spinning from all this Social Security information. That was so much. I think my favorite takeaway is that you don't have to call your ex. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. Marsha actually helped me with one of my recent columns for AARP Magazine. Oh, nice. Where we had this situation, a woman had been married years ago. Her ex had passed away, and she didn't know that she was eligible to claim on his record. She got a lot more money than she would have gotten on her own. She was so excited. It's so lovely. Um, and and uh, she was relieved, too, that she hadn't been in touch with the guy in 20 years. Great. Yeah, yeah my mother-in-law claims on her Access social security and get so much more than she would have because she was a stay-at-home mom for my husband. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. It's so interesting. I should say, if you're looking for one of those computer programs to help you run the very best way to take Social Security, Maximize My Social Security is the one I like. It was developed by an economist in Boston named Larry Kotlikoff, and he has written some bestsellers on Social Security as well. And I think it's I think it's forty nine dollars. It's not a not a ton of money. Oh, good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got letters. We sure do. Our first question comes to us from an anonymous listener. She writes, I love listening to your podcast and am new to educating myself about investing in retirement planning. We recently decided to cut back on childcare, which has enabled us to save an additional $300 per week. We annually max out my husband's SEP, but not my 403B. I contribute about $13,000 a year to my account and receive about $5,000 per year in an annuity from my employer's 4% match. I'm 43 years old. I know this $300 per week is not a ton of money, but my goal is for it to add up. Where would you recommend we stash it? The options I've been considering are another IRA, an investment account we have that's filled with mutual funds, a new low-fee index fund, or something else. Thanks so much. First of all, can I just argue with the fact that $300 a week is not a ton of money? $300 a week is $12,000 a year. It's probably more than twelve. I mean, I just did some quick math in my head. It's a lot of money. I had the same thought. It is. And good for you, by the way, for being able to, I think it's closer to $15,000 a year. It's a huge amount of money. It's a, I think back to any point in my early career when you couldn't even save $300 a quarter, yeah. you know? So good for you for being able to put aside that much money. I would actually choose option D on your list, which is something else first. I would max out that 403B. Maxing out a work-based retirement plan is very, very easy. You say you contribute 13000 a year to your account, you're eligible to contribute about 50% more than that. So, so I would do that first. I don't know if that'll get you any more in matching dollars, but I know it's a very easy move. After that, I'd look at two things. I'd look at other tax advantage options that you're eligible for. So that might be another IRA, but it also could be a health savings account if you have one that's not on your list. It could be a 529 if you want to save for college for those kids. Places where the money has the ability to grow tax deferred, because it sounds like you're putting aside a lot of money already for retirement, I feel comfortable suggesting that you might want to put some money aside for healthcare or for college. Beyond that, if you're already doing those things, I think the uh, investment account that you have, the new low-fee index fund, sounds they both sound fine. It's, mm-hmm. it's very um, important, as I think this writer clearly understands to minimize investment costs and fees wherever possible because any money that you minimize in fees is money that goes right back in your pocket. But I think you're you're doing a great job. So look at your goals. If if college for your kids is a goal, then I would I would think about putting the money there. Great point. And she doesn't mention an emergency fund, so that's a possibility. That's that's actually very true. I assume that somebody who's putting so much money away for retirement right. has an emergency fund. But if you don't have one, that's a very good place to put it as well. Fantastic. 
Our next question is also from an anonymous listener. She writes, Hello, ladies. Thank you for all of the wonderful content. I've learned so much in my short time as a listener, so keep it coming. My questions are all around money issues for victims and survivors of domestic abuse. How can family and friends provide specific financial support that doesn't jeopardize the person's safety or open up the possibility of the abuser taking the money? Financial independence is such a major part of domestic violence and is one of the biggest hurdles for survivors to overcome. I'd love some tips for how family and friends can support these brave women and men who find themselves in such unfortunate circumstances. Specifically, my family member is a longtime victim, and I'm finally in a place to support her financially to some degree. I'm 24, I'm working full-time and living with my family, so I'm saving a lot of money on rent. I'm especially concerned about her savings for retirement and emergencies. She has two kids in college who she's taken out parent loans for, and two more kids on their way to college. Like so many other women, she prioritizes her children over herself. She has about $100,000 in student loans and is 43 years old. I know she contributes about 3% of her $65,000 annual salary to her 401k, but says she can't afford any other savings and has only been saving for the last two years. Of course, I don't know the full financial picture here, but I know that this is not nearly enough for what she needs to save for retirement, and I'm guessing she has no cash savings for emergencies. What are my options to help her financially? Should I open investment accounts and contribute to them for her? How involved should she be? What else should I be thinking about here? Thank you so much. Thank you so much for writing, and thank you for stepping up to help this member of your family. I'm struck by the fact that at 24 years old, you are thinking about this, and I think that says an awful lot about you. Yep. You don't mention whether or not this woman is still in the situation, the abusive situation. It looks, reading between the lines, as if she has gotten out of it um, and is starting to get herself back on her feet. Assuming that that's the case, I think there are a number of different ways that you might be able to help her. You could contribute to repaying her student loans if that is something that is sitting on her head. You could open an emergency savings account or just make an automatic contribution to her emergency savings account to give her some cash to make her life a little bit easier. You could also help her by enabling her to sit down with a financial advisor who could look at her overarching situation and see if there's any way to restructure her debts, maybe to lower her interest rates to make the financial burden easier. I might simply start by asking her how you can help. I think you seem to be close enough to her to say, what can I do for you to make your life easier. I have money at my disposal that I can use for this. It's not everything, but it's something I want to help. Please tell me what you'd be most comfortable with. And I, I think that's how I would approach it. What do you think? I think that's a fantastic idea because it may be that she needs time more than anything else. Yeah. Time babysitting or maybe an hour of house cleaning that you could do. I mean, the offer for money is great if that's if money is what you want to give, but I feel like asking the question as to how you can help is just so appreciated. 
And I also think that getting her in front of a financially, a compassionate financial advisor, she's taken out Parent PLUS loans for two children that she really can't afford based on this picture. She's got two more kids. I would like to see her not take out Parent PLUS loans for those next two kids because she can't afford those either. And the sooner she realizes that, the better off her entire situation is going to be. Right. I think... Like you said, maybe just hearing an expert say you have to put yourself first, Mm -hmm. you have to pay yourself first is what she needs. Exactly. Exactly. Please keep us posted. Yeah. Please let us know. Our last question is from Melinda. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. I've been a listener of Her Money for several years now, and I'm incredibly appreciative of the knowledge and understanding it's given me on my financial journey. I'm grateful for your candor and compassion, and I'm hoping you can help me make a financial decision. I'm at a rather unique juncture and find myself at a loss as to what to do. Backstory. I'm employed full-time, but for the last two and a half years, I've been attending graduate school at night. My salary is $69,000. For the last four to five years, I've had a credit card balance of around $12,000. Despite my debt, I have a FICO score of 785 due to an immaculate payment history. So, I've managed to move my balances to balance transfer credit cards for 0% interest periods, occasionally paying the standard 3 to 4% balance transfer fee. I've done this half a dozen times now. Despite my best efforts and attempts at better budgeting, my balance has remained the same over the years. I'll occasionally pay off one credit card, but then slowly add the debt back onto another. It's a painful admission. I live in the greater NYC area, and my cost of living is high, and as a single woman, the financial responsibilities fall solely on me. The balance transfers just save me the interest, but I haven't made a substantive dent in my debt. I'm wondering if now is the time to consider a personal loan rather than look for another balance transfer card and continue this process. I just have a hard time accepting a 4 to 5% interest rate when I know I'd very likely be accepted for another 0% interest card. One consideration— I graduate with my master's this May and expect that this summer I'll be earning closer to eighty to $85,000 in my new career. Thanks for your guidance. Oh, boy. So um, the good news is you got more money coming your way. Right. I know you are not going to take out a, a personal loan. You're not going to take out a personal loan at this point. It's okay to transfer your balance again to a 0% card, but what you really need now is accountability. Yep. Because your money is if you've been able to pay off a credit card and then you've just built that debt back up, it's because you've allowed yourself to build that debt back up. And so we're going to give you some accountability. We are launching a coaching program our initial starter class will be launching right around the time that you graduate with your master's. Catherine's going to get back in touch with you, and I'm going to coach you out of this. And then you're going to come on the show, and you're going to tell everybody how the experience was. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> because this is what this is about. The money is there. It's just sometimes I think we all need sounding board. Sometimes we all need someone to just hold our feet to the fire and say, you know, no, you are not going to have that second glass of wine tonight. You told (laughs) yourself you were only going to have one, and so you're only going to have one. And sometimes if we're on our own, we need somebody else to do that for us. And and by the way, that was the example from my own life. Mm -hmm. So that's why we're launching a coaching program. You'll have some uh, – we'll use technology to help you see where your money is going. 
but it involves tracking your spending and it involves talking to a coach who initially will be me about where your money is going and how to make changes to make it go to the right place. That sounds fantastic. And I also think just looking at how much more she's going to be earning in her new career. We want to make if sure she's... you are diligent and you don't spend the level... Yep. What is the saying? Spend... To the... your income? Spend... Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. It's like spend to the level of what you make. Yeah. If you don't spend to the level of what you make, then you'll be out of the debt in no time. Yeah. The risk is that she falls right into that lifestyle inflation trap, exactly. right? Exactly. You're, you, oh my God, I've got so much money. I'm going on vacation. Well, no, we're not going to let you do that. Yep. In today's Thrive, thank you, Catherine, by the way. Thank you. In today's Thrive, let's talk about financial anxieties. If you're late paying your bills, if you're dealing with a spouse who's overspending, if you constantly feel like you're unable to make progress on your bigger financial goals, you may have a loop of negative self-talk running in the back of your mind that isn't motivating you to make changes at all. It's simply keeping you up at night, and that is no good. Although we may not want to, facing our financial fears is the only way we can really start to feel better. There are a few things that we can do to get over our money hangups and start overcoming the emotions that sideline our financial progress. Number one, Know where you stand and where you want to go. I feel like I say this all the time when we're talking about our sponsor, Fidelity. You've got to know where you are and what's the goal. Put it all on paper, your current financial picture, as well as your specific goals and steps to get there. Two, put a system in place. Once you've figured out where your money needs to go, put your finances on autopilot as much as possible. Whether it's making automatic monthly debt payments or automatic transfers on each payday into an emergency fund or retirement savings accounts, this helps minimize daily decisions. Three, Schedule a weekly money hour. Money, like exercise, is something you have to do on a regular basis. Progress doesn't magically happen on its own. You can spend your money hour paying your bills, checking on your budget, totaling your savings, or dealing with sticking points. And four, seek help. There is no reason to struggle through this alone. The Association for Financial Counseling and Planned Education and the Financial Therapy Association have searchable directories of practitioners. Some come from a psychology background, others from the world of financial advice, and most will provide a free initial consultation to see if it's a good fit. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Marsha Mantel for sharing her expertise on all things Social Security and for helping us to calm down and rest easy about the fact that the safety net in some form will be there in retirement. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Join us next week when we'll be back with another great Her Money guest. We'll talk soon.